the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, Dennis Prager here. This is Dennis and Julie, Dennis Prager, Julie Hartman. This is a big one. The first time we're doing our podcast together in physically. Person. Yes. No longer are you seeing my Matisse prints in the background of my dorm. I Do you remember those? I never saw your Matisse prints. Oh, really? All I saw was a bookcase, <laughs> which I think was largely empty. Oh, are you kidding? It, ha- it was... It was filled full? Okay, I don't mostly that. with with your books. Actually, you know it's funny. That's funny. It's nice to have a microphone here that is a normal mic. What I would do? Oh, that's right. Oh my! I'm God. letting I'm letting you listeners in on a secret. I would I had this small microphone, and Sean, our lovely producer, would say you need to put it closer to your face. And so I would take my books and stack it on there. And the books that I had were Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America and the Federalist Papers. So those are pretty good books to stack my mic on There are very for few this people podcast. who would tell you what the names of the books they stack <laughs> their microphone on. That's funny. I, I, well, I – so here's my secret. I broadcast this week from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And last week from Florida. And for the video part, I put my, my my laptop with the Skype on the top of an ice bucket. Really? Yes. By the way, I have seen Dennis, everyone, do like Fox News interviews. He puts his computer on top of his lunchbox, which is That's right. down here. That's right. So. I don't have an ice bucket here. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Anyway, it's a very big deal. We're in person. It is. As we will be. God willing for many years. That's right. God willing. That's that. So welcome. I, I look. I, I there's stuff to talk about about the world and American life and all of that. But I, I gotta say, I've got you here now within five days of your graduating college. Yes. And so, I just want people to know we don't rehearse this stuff. No. So I don't know what you'll say. So here's one to begin with. So so you graduated Harvard last week and you know the H bomb. We all we all know you know H is an H bomb. We all know it. Okay. So having recognized the elephant in the room, we'll put it aside. Whether it's Harvard or or wherever, what was your happiness level at your graduation 1 to 10? 10. I was thrilled. I was very proud of myself. I worked so hard to get into that university. I worked very hard at that school. And, you know, I, I was so proud of myself because it, Larry Bacow, our president, he opened the commencement by saying, think of the person you were when you came into this yard on your first day of classes. We had, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Not commencement, um, convocation. We had a convocation ceremony when we were freshmen sitting there. And the thing I thought of was, boy, now I'm graduating and I know Dennis and I have this podcast with him and I'm working for Salem and I've really um, developed intellectually. I've become conservative and and that's why I was a 10 because I'm so proud of the person that I've become. Oh, that's true. I didn't think of it that way. Everybody's different after four years, but you, it's it's dramatic, your life. You know, it isn't, it isn't because I know we've talked about this. On the one hand, it is dramatic obviously, because look at, I'm sitting across from you and I have this amazing um, professional journey I'm embarking on and, and more importantly, this intellectual journey. But also, you know, I like to say that I became conservative, but I sort of think I always had those beliefs. And when I discovered you and when I discovered Prager You, it just kind of gave me the vocabulary to express it. Okay, I have a theory on that. Mm-hmm. People come over to me a lot, and it's very moving, and I believe them. I'm not, I don't believe in false humility. 
uh, or false modesty. So they say, you know, I just want you to know you changed my life. And my standard answer to them, you'll find of interest. I say, you must understand you get exactly half the credit. You know how many people hear me and nothing happens? Yes. Obviously, there was something in you that resonated to, to just the sheer logic of these ideas and the, the decency of them. Yes. So you're right. But, but, but somebody has to trigger it yes. or it lies dormant. That, that, so both are true. You know, sometimes I think to myself, am I an original thinker? I'm very hard on myself, as you know, and I think, God, you know, should I have just sort of come to this on my own? You know, oh. why did I need a dentist or need a prayer you? But then I thought to your point, Dennis, you know, part of life is when people point you in the right direction, you have to have the wisdom and the judgment to be able to recognize that it's a good thing and adopt it. So for that reason, you're right. I'm proud of myself. That's right. Look, uh, Victor Frankl sort of did for me in some ways what I did for you mm-hmm. in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Two, two life-changing things. Three life-changing things. One, the need for meaning is the greatest need we have beyond food. It's, only food is more. Mm-hmm. Number two, that we have the only freedom that we ultimately have is how we react. We have no freedom on what happens to us. Right. The only freedom we have is how we react, which he learned from the Nazi concentration camp. He had no freedom except how to react. Right. And number three, that uh, even after losing his, his wife and his family, members of his family to the Nazis, he was asked after the war, you know, do you hate the German race? That's the way they put it in those days. And he said, of course not. There are only two races, the decent and the indecent, which became the motto of my life. Right. So all of them were not brand new in the sense, oh, I never heard of that idea, but I needed somebody to articulate it. Yes. Yes. So I, I, totally, I totally get what you say. But when I asked you your happiness level on graduation day, so I don't th- – look – You say, so I didn't know what you would say. I thought you might say 10 or 9. I knew it was high. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't sure exactly why. And it was because you're happy with your life at at this moment is basically what you said. And who I am. But the graduation itself did, was was that a happiness inducer? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. First of all, coming into the graduation, I saw my parents. I mean, Harvard graduation is a zoo. I think there are 32,000 people in the yard because they have the law school and the business school and undergrads and all of the parents and siblings. And I walked in and from across the yard, miraculously, I saw my parents and they were just beaming with pride and waving and I was waving at them and it was just it was one of the happiest moments of my life really I'll never forget it because yes it's an accomplishment for me but it's a it's a huge moment for my parents I have the chills actually I'm your parents are wonderful people thank you I'm very very happy for them I did (laughs) I did not provide my parents (laughs) with the same joy a I didn't even go to my college graduation you asked me right before what did I I do and I and I I was I either went to the movies uh, or I wasn't in the U.S. I don't remember which. I know it's bizarre, mm-hmm. but that's how little it, it didn't mean anything to me. And it's no knock. I went to Brooklyn College, right. which I'm very grateful for a whole bunch of other reasons, uh, but it's not exactly Harvard to say the least. Uh, and there were uh, 2,500 graduates. You had 1,600. Yes. Oh, so that is comparable in that way. Anyway, it, it, it truly didn't mean anything to me, to be honest. Uh, and uh, I'm sure had I gone to Harvard, I probably would have gone to the graduation. You, I will say, though, you got stuck with the speaker. Well, that, that's the second. <laughs> I said I was going to answer the question in two ways. The first way was, you know, I said I saw my parents and it was truly very touching. And I started crying when I saw them. But to answer your question about whether the the ceremony itself was happiness inducing, um, it worried me. It I left the ceremony feeling like, I, I mean, I expected it to be woke. I expected it to um, be left wing, but it was, it was something else. First of all, um, 
they they played the national anthem at the beginning of the ceremony and i saw that on the program and i thought oh my gosh i can't believe that they're doing this i was stunned right, right. but then when they played it f- first of all no one sang it it was just music and i thought that was interesting why is no one singing along it's such a beautiful you know such beautiful lyrics such beautiful messages why aren't people singing right. it and second of all which was very interesting um it was it was sort of funky like the tune it, it was it was sort of like a modern take on the anthem which was nice in some ways like they sort of um but they didn't want to sound too patriotic yeah, it didn't it didn't sound right. exactly like the anthem it's not that it didn't sound like the anthem but it was clearly not traditional and so i i took note of that because i thought this is this is i think a little bit of a way to disguise the anthem or, of course, to not embrace it in its full traditional form. So that was the first thing that caught my attention. The second thing was, up on that stage, they have the board of members of the board of overseers. What an aptly named group, by the way. Board of overseers instead of board of trustees. Um, and they have you know all these dignitaries and people who they're awarding honorary degrees. Ready who was up on the stage? Ready for who was up on the stage? Gloria Steinem. They gave Gloria Steinem an honorary degree. Katanji Brown Jackson was up there. They they didn't give her one because she went, she went to Harvard for undergrad. Then she went to the law school and she was previously a member of the board of overseers. And then there was Jacinda Ardern, who is the prime minister of New Zealand, who was our commencement speaker, as you just noted. And I was sitting there. Even we're not even getting into Jacinda's speech yet. I'll, I'll talk to you about that next. But just that plain fact, those people up there on the stage, I thought, you know, for all that these individuals talk about reaching across the aisle and, um, you know, having dialogue and being exposed to opinions that are different, there are all left wing people up on this stage. Are they not aware of that who, who, fact? Who think the same on every single issue? Yes. Why do you think that? Why do you think they are so unaware? Or I guess they are aware, and they no, don't my, care. No, no. Actually, my theory is that leftists are not self-aware. Right. I have had that sense for for many years. Anyway, go on. Well, the Prime Minister of New Zealand gave the commencement address, and I'm actually going to compliment her first, and then I'll tell you what I didn't like about the speech. You know, I, she was a very composed, articulate speaker. And one of the things I took away was her tone was, was very nice and conciliatory and thoughtful. And I remember throughout the speech thinking, even though I don't agree with like just, uh, just about anything she says, um, I wanted to root for her because of the way that she came across. And, you know, as I'm enter- entering this world of the professional media world where I'm, you know, going to be espousing conservative beliefs and trying to win people over. I took note of that because I thought I should I should really try to mm-hmm. have a good tone and sound, you know, again, sound conciliate not that it should be um disingenuous, but as you know, Dennis, your tone matters so much. And again, even though I disagreed with her, I wanted to root for her, so that was something I took away. Now on to the By the uh, way, that's a biggie. It is a biggie. Uh, I know in my own life, and people say they love my calm, that it's a big factor. Well, that, I remember, if I can take myself back to when I first discovered you, I remember that made a big impression on me because you sounded kind. You didn't sound, you know, so many of these pundits, and I'll say it on, on the right, they sound so angry. And you don't. And neither did this woman. And it's powerful. And it's powerful not just if you're, you know, in front of a microphone speaking to thousands of people, but it's powerful in your own life when you're having a debate with someone. It's so important the way that you come across in your tone. Um, Now on to the speech, which was um, concerning. The speech, to me, her points, the the sort of um, message I got from the speech, even though she didn't say it overtly, was New Zealand is doing everything right. And you Americans somehow can't do what we've done. And so she, she said at one point she was listing um, her objectives or her accomplishments in office. And she was saying, you know, when I got into office, I, I tried to combat climate change. I tried to combat child poverty. I decriminalized abortion. And when she said it, everyone, everyone in the yard stood up and clapped and whistled and wooed when she said decriminalize abortion. And before I go on to the next thing she said, which is 
also very interesting. I thought that was so weird, Dennis. Even if you agree that abortion should be decriminalized, there was something that did not sit well with me about people um, seeming so happy. I mean, this is a very, very difficult, tragic, regrettable thing having an abortion. And if people clapped in support of her policy, fine. But the demonstration of right. joy. And she said, if we just found a cure for lung cancer in New Zealand, I don't think they would have been as ecstatic. You're absolutely right. They would not have. They would have clapped. Some people would have wooed, but to have people just stand up in that way was striking. I think you should tell everybody what you told me. Somebody didn't stand. I didn't stand. I was the only one I could see who did not stand. And I'm proud of that. And I am proud of you. That thank you. That uh, actually, if I if I were to tell maybe one story about you to someone who didn't know you, that that is what I might say. By the way, do you you don't know you don't know this parallel in my life? It has nothing to do with politics, but I remember I w- when I was in uh, uh, my senior year in high school every. Sunday night that the New York Rangers hockey team played in Madison Square Garden. I grew up in New York. I would go to a game. I was, mm-hmm. I've always loved hockey, and I was then a Ranger fan. So uh, the whole place was always sold out, of course. And whenever there was a fight, every single person in Madison Square Garden stood and whooped it up and cheered. One person didn't stand, and it was me. The second you said that, mm-hmm. and again, mine has nothing to do with politics, but it's it's not different. Uh, I I don't like cheering fights. They're I go awful. to see hockey. I don't go to see fights. Right. Uh, and uh, I love hockey, and I don't love the fights. And anyway, everybody's cheering not for the guy who's right. They're cheering for their guy to beat the hell out of the other guy. It, it was, in other words, it had nothing connected to right and wrong. Right. And, it was and, anarchy. And, and that was, and, and that, so in that sense, it's analogous. But I, I'm only saying this because uh, the, the role you play in my life is because of who you are and how I so relate as you can with me. And, and, and this. So when you said you were the only one who didn't stand, I went back to high school senior to remember when I was the only one who didn't stand. Mm. It's powerful. And, you know, people around me, just as I was saying, people take note of your tone and the way that you communicate. I saw people around me looking at me, and I I hope that I provided an example, just as I'm sure people took note during that game when you didn't stand. I hope it made an impression on people. I know know it would make an impression on me if I were one of the ones standing and I saw someone who didn't. I wonder what what, what went on in their minds. They probably thought, bigot. (laughs) Realistically, they, they probably didn't make an impression in the way I would want it to. Well, first of all, in, in the ultimate analysis, if it if it made an impression on one person, that's a big deal. Yes. Uh, that it, let me just say a word about that because you're you're really beginning your public life now. It's a very big mistake for people to think quantity is everything. Look at me. Look, I mean, look at this. That's you right. Influenced well, me. that's I'm exactly more- that is exactly correct. Because if quantity is the biggest factor, then none of us will do enough good. There are 7 billion people or whatever on on this earth. Right. And and 350 million or 330 million at this time in America. Uh, So you want to touch as many lives as possible, but I'll give you an interesting thing because you're going to be doing talk show uh, a lot now because you'll be sitting in for a lot of Salem hosts, which mm-hmm. is also amazing at 22 to have that. As some of you may know, I just graduated from Harvard and I'm very proud of that accomplishment. But I want to tell you about another great college in New York City, the King's College, which is a Christian liberal arts school in New York City's financial district, providing a disciplined curriculum with a Christian worldview, both in person and online. 
Every program is rooted in a politics, philosophy, and economics core curriculum, which provides students with a framework for understanding the way the world works and how it's influenced. Because of this, King's graduates are well-rounded, critical thinkers. I actually had a Zoom call where I met with the president of King's College and many of their representatives, and they're lovely people. King's faculty pride themselves in not sharing their opinions on topics, but instead teaching the historical context that roots the issues of the day. They told me that students come to King's to, quote, earn their opinion. Faculty don't teach them what to think, but how to think. Find out how you can attend the King's College in person or online today by visiting tkc.edu. That's tkc.edu. Don't just go to college, go to King's. So I'll tell you a, a, a lesson I tell everybody who starts to talk radio. If you see your board light up, meaning all calls coming in, it doesn't mean anything. Right. But every talk show host who begins thinks, I lit up the whole board. An idiot can light up the board if they just say guns or abortion yes. or, 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 I don't know, any, any other emotional issue. Of course you light up the board. Right. You, so it's very, very tempting to think quantitatively. But ultimately the world is one, one by one by one. And, and, and. Evil is done one by one by one, too. Yes. Uh, anyway, so you didn't stand up, which I think is huge. And then, you know, it's over. You you had one other thing that I was very touched. You sent me a picture of your roommates. So they were seven, of, seven girls in all? Six girls in total. Oh, six girls included. in total. And uh, am- amazingly... To the best of my knowledge, you like them. I adore them. I that, that, totally that's really, adore them. So that's remarkable given how rare it is to have a conservative at Harvard. Right. So how do you explain it? I just think that they share my values. I mean, trust me, I, I don't think anyone in that room is conservative. But I think that they respect me and that they appreciate me and they know who I am and they know the kind of friend and person than I am every day. Well, and they this like it. too is is another enormous uh, feather in your cap. Thank you. To to be a conservative among non-conservatives and be liked, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. I am pretty well liked. I mean, of course, there are people, I can tell you about those people who are mean to me on campus or who give me dirty looks. But honestly, Dennis, I really, I was kind of stunned. When I came back to school for my senior year, I thought, oh my gosh, I just spent this whole summer being very public, working for you, being on your show, guest hosting. I thought, you know, people aren't going to like me. I'm not going to have friends. And it wasn't that way. Because again, I think people were able to see past my beliefs and they just know the type of person I am. Um, and and also, I know I've said this, but I do think there there is a part of people that is drawn to truth tellers and drawn to people who are bold, and that's why you know we're ha- it's very apropos of our discussion. We're having this discussion about influencing one person. It, it's very powerful, and I, I hope I've done that. And I've, I've even seen it with my roommates. I think in a small kind of way, even if they don't agree with me, they, they respect me, and I've influenced them just by the sheer fact that I'm being very open and honest and unapologetic with what I believe. Because people, people aren't that way on Harvard's campus or any well, of these college well, campuses. Forget, you know, or anywhere, yes, really. Yes, exactly. Well, right. it t- look, it takes the rarest of traits, courage, obviously. How do your parents react to your being an outlier? They are so supportive. I am so lucky. You know, I say all the time, I'm I'm privileged, but the biggest privilege I have is that I have two parents in my house who are married, who care for me and are in the boat rowing with me. They don't agree. As you know, you've met my parents. They're not as conservative as I am. They don't agree with me on everything. I was just having a debate with my dad last night, but they... On what? On Trump, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but they they support what I'm doing, and they know how important you are to me, and and they know I I think they know how important this is for our country, even if they don't agree with everything. So I I know how lucky I am. So I'll tell the story. Uh, you know it obviously, mm-hmm. but um, it it meant a lot to me what I said to your father yes. when he picked you up. 
at a uh, a Shabbat dinner that you attended uh, with me, and it was was about eleven o'clock at night, and he goes, just he's still at the in his car, and he goes, just want to thank you for all you've done for Julie, and as you know, I said to him immediately. I mean, I didn't I didn't have to think. I said, I haven't done anything for Julie. I've done this for America. And then I asked you, how did he react? He loved it. He loved it. He did? Yes, he brings it up about once a week. He thought it was very touching. Thank you for saying that. That's very touching. Well, that's a good example of not overthinking. Because if I would have thought and thought, I would have thought, well... He's thanking me for what I did for you. Why don't I just take the credit, you know, because I like his daughter so much. <laughs> but I, I, I've i always gambled saying what, what, what was true or what I believed to be true. And it, 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 invariably it works. Some, obviously there are times it doesn't, but overwhelmingly. And so even though it didn't sound as loving to the daughter, you. Oh, I think it's incredibly loving. I, I am. I think that's probably the best compliment you could get. Could have. Well, you're given. right. No, but I understand you're, you're, what you're saying. Yeah, to the no, ear, yes. it doesn't sound as loving. Right, right. But you're right. It is, of course, is the best compliment. I, I'm not. I'm helping America by helping your daughter. That's a pretty big deal. Right. I I couldn't agree more. No, he brings that up a so, lot. So you are less. This is for posterity. You will show this to your kids. God willing, you'll have one Hi, day. Kids. <laughs> That's great. Hello. <laughs> exactly. Here's Uncle Dennis. That's right. Uh, this is me without wrinkles. Oh, that is hilarious. Yes, that's wrinkles. right. This is precious stuff. <laughs> so this is so close to leaving college. So it's an college is a cocoon. It doesn't matter what college. It's just a cocoon. Right. Uh it, it has almost no connection to the real world. So do you think the your average classmate is ready for the real world? No. You are. No, they're not. No. I I mean, the the obvious answer is that they are so hostile to beliefs that are not their own. So in that way, they're not... Well, actually, though, Dennis, sorry, I know I'm digressing here. I used to think, okay, people aren't ready for the real world if they cannot tolerate differing opinions. Honestly, though, this real world that they're entering into, especially all of my classmates who are going into finance and consulting and these sort of standard industries for Ivy League college graduates, they're also entering these echo chambers where they're not going to have to encounter beliefs that... Oh, yes, that's a very good point. Maybe that's no longer true. That's right. That is exactly right. So you know what? Right. Maybe I am. I mean, they're not ready for the world they're, as it should be, but maybe they are ready for this world. They're going from cocoon to cocoon. Yep. Especially if they stay in a big city like New York or, or Boston, for that matter. Yep. And many of them are. They're going. By to the Boston, way, I New told York. you earlier. This is a crack up to me. Mm-hmm. So, um, my my wife who travels with me, thank God, a lot. And so Sue uh, can bear witness to how often people stop me. To, and, and get a selfie with me, especially at airports. So, uh, I, I, by the way, I'm always touched by it. It's never a bother ever. But the only airport that has that it I can remember in in, in the last decade not being stopped was Boston's Logan, Logan Airport. I actually think I could walk through Boston pretty much anonymously. Well, that's a cocoon. Well, I was just there, as you know, five days ago, flying home, and there are the amount of people I saw wearing masks still, N95 masks, young people, young women walking wow, throughout that airport. Wow. I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that doesn't shock me. So I have a theory that I developed uh, on my – and I, I devoted I devoted an hour to it mm-hmm. on my radio show – and this is not common. Alan, who you know is not Mr. Emotional, the living, the martyr, living martyr, as we call him on, the, on my Dennis's show. This producer. My producer. Mm-hmm. He was so taken with that hour, he said, just do it over again then tomorrow, which would have been today. Right. 
I, I didn't. I just mentioned it in passing. But if he's that taken, it means I've I've hit uh, gold here. So you'll find this. I think I I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but it doesn't matter. Um, so a dear friend of mine attending the wedding, which brought me to Boston. Uh, the uh, who whom you know. I'll just say David for, I won't say his last name. Right. Anonymity. Right. So he was at the wedding. Mm-hmm. He's a very gentle character, a very gentle human being, a wonderful man. And he said, you know, I was struck. A lot of these people in Boston were just friendly. And that confirmed for me uh, my theory, which I developed as a result of Minnesota, what I call what I don't call, it's just known as Minnesota nice. People in Minnesota are known to be nice. It's Mm -hmm. called Minnesota nice. But they produce some really awful people in politics. Mm -hmm. And they, they, in Minneapolis, they produced a very, very terrible scene in in 2020 with the riots and the burnings and the lootings. And I, I, I concluded and this is one of the biggest conclusions uh, of my life. There is no relationship between nice and wise. Or th- let me put it to you in a, in a new phrase I literally came up with today. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's an old phrase. Yes. And it's a truism. So what is the road to heaven paved with? Wisdom. Right. And that is what people don't know. They think the road to heaven and hell are both paved with good intentions. No. Not not true. Not true. You know, I mean, obviously I had heard of the word wisdom prior to encountering your work. But I remember the first time that I really appreciated it as something powerful and necessary was when I read um, the the Rational Bible in Genesis, because you were talking about, I believe it was in the first few pages, and you were talking about um, science and how it relates to the Torah. And you said, science teaches us how the world works, but it doesn't give us wisdom. And that's why the Bible is so important, because it gives us wisdom. And now the W word... You really read it. Oh, I reread it. Yes. All uh, the time. Uh, 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 <laughs> no, I mean... I say this to you all the time, and I know I've said this on air. I feel like such a suck-up sometimes when I talk about how much I read of yours. But it It's not a suck-up. <laughs> of course you it's would like think I'm, so. Well, no, no. It's like <laughs> no. saying I'm a suck-up to the Torah. Right. I, no, of I, course. I, you know, yeah, no, I just want people to understand that. Right. It, it, it doesn't even enter my mind. But anyway, go on. But you have no idea how big of an impact your work has had on me. When I read it, it was like I was hit with a lightning bolt. Truly. And I reread it, and every time it's like I'm hit with a lightning bolt. And that's why I give I gift my your books to my friends because if people and it kills me, I feel like if everyone just read Still the Best Hope, we would have so many more people mm, leaving the I left. Know. It's I know it it kills me as I know it kills you. But also look at how many people you've influenced. Right, that's point. why you you can't you can't get arrogant and you can't get depressed. You right. have to fight against both. Yes. Because there's a case to be made in both directions. I want to ask you, because you just said to me, how did I feel at my graduation, you know, on a scale of one to ten? And I said I was so proud of who I who I am. I am so proud of who I am. How did you feel about yourself on your graduation day? Okay. Are so, you the same uh, person? This is how much um, uh, I, I open up about uh, both of us to, to the world. Mm-hmm. We have such parallel lives. We do. So I, I, let me see. I graduated twenty-one. You graduated twenty-two. Same, same age essentially. And I, I knew I was special. You know you're special, and it has nothing to do with arrogance. Zero. It's like saying if you if you're a child prodigy on the piano, what are you going to deny you 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 play the piano? Well, I mean it's absurd. It, 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 I, I can't stand false modesty, and I can't stand arrogance. And by the way, you you say that in the Torah. You say when God declares His creations good, it's a lesson in showing that if you are creating something God. good, you should say it. 
Now, now I'm just bragging, everyone. Now I'm just showing off how much. Oh uh, no, I, I I love it beyond words. By the way, you'll love this. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not at at it yet because the book hasn't come out yet. When later in uh, which book is it? Is it Deuteronomy? Is it? Is it um, it's either Deuteronomy or Numbers when uh, it says, and Moses was the most humble man on earth. And first of all, the tradition says Moses wrote this. Moses is right, he's the most humble man on earth. If you're the most humble man on earth, you can say it. Humility doesn't mean denial of, of, of your good traits. That's absurd. That, that, that's, that's false. Right. A humble person knows his worth, knows his flaws, knows his worth, knows that, that that's that's what it amounts to. Right. Anyway, so when I when I graduated college, I had let me see, was it uh, yes, I had already been sent to the Soviet Union, and my public oh, life right. had begun. I was a public figure at the same age you are. That that is what is so rare and and such a parallel. A stream, so I totally identify, and uh, I I I knew that I had to do something. I felt, frankly, that I had a mission uh, from God. Not that God appointed me. I never met God. God never spoke to me. Just want to make that clear. By the way, I think everyone has a mission from God. I don't Agreed. think I don't at all think uh, I am the only one. But most people. Don't you, a, a biblical word would be appropriate here. So I don't know if you're familiar, and I don't expect you to be, with the Book of Jonah. So jo- this is awesome. It's a small book of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So Jonah is called by God to go to a, the city called Nineveh and tell them to repent. He doesn't want the role. God speaks to him. And he decides, frankly, I'm not, I don't want to do it. He goes onto a boat to escape, like you could escape God, which is almost hilarious. Right. And, and then it's the famous part where there's such storms and the, the nice, really wonderful non-Israelites, non-Hebrews on the boat think, oh, go. They finally figure out the storms are because of Jonah. And 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 Jonah and they all decide we feel terrible, but we got to throw them overboard, or we're all going to drown. <laughs> and that's when the whale—that's Jonah and the whale. Oh, so that's when the whale comes. It's a phenomenal story. It's one God, of my favorites. So this. here is my theory, mm-hmm. especially about the Jews. The Jews are all Jonah. The Jews have a mission from God, and they're all going on boats to escape it. Oh, how interesting. Of course, you're talking about secular left-wing That's Jews. exactly right. correct. Yes. Right. Even, by the way, even many religious Jews, they don't talk to the world. Right. So you felt like you had a mission from God when yes. you were my age. Yes. And because I, earlier in this conversation, I said, you know, we talk about my change in life being drastic. That is my becoming conservative. But I said, I feel like I always had it in me. Right. You also have told me, and you've told the world that you were a liberal once do you was it the same thing where you feel like you no said, no oh, really? uh, no i didn't have that because for for i i always hated the left because the right. left didn't hate communism i knew it was not a good movement right you if you can't hate evil you're, you're so you really did have a oh i was wait, let me i never had a 180 oh okay right because uh that i tell my i tell my liberal relatives I say, tell me one value I had as when I was a liberal that I don't have today. Okay, I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying something different. Yeah, it, that, this makes makes much more sense that, because we are right. aligned that way. So that you is, did you did have it in you, right? Well, exactly. But um, so no, yours is more dramatic in that sense. The 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 dividing line between Julie A and Julie B even though it was always in you. Right. I don't have that divide. The only dividing right. line really was uh, when I became a Republican, which was unbelievably difficult because you are raised. When you're a Jewish New Yorker, especially went to Columbia, the combination, you it is a given you're a liberal and it's a given you're a Democrat. Yes. <laughs> so 
when I voted the first time Republican, because and by the way, talk about influence. This was a sea change. Reagan changed me with one sentence. You know, we we have five minute videos of PragerU, mm-hmm. and people say, "What can you do in five minutes?" Hey, so listen, much. Of course, Reagan oh did it God. in one sentence. Government is not the solution; it's the problem. problem. And that that is what made me a Republican. Everything everything resides on small government. Everything. By the way, the whole gun issue, you know, because of U- Uvalde, which is now so it's dominant. The, right. the, the kid killing these nineteen kids and two teachers. I mean, it's beyond belief. As you know, Mike Lindell strives to help everyone get the best sleep of their life. He didn't stop by simply creating the best pillow. Now he's done it again by introducing his My Slippers. For a limited time, you will save $90 on a pair of My Slippers. This sale of the year won't last, so order now. Mike has taken two years to develop this product. They're designed to be worn indoors and outdoors all day long. They're made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue, and they're also made with quality leather suede. Call 1-800-566-6745 and use the promo code Hartman, that's my last name, H-A-R-T-M-A-N, or go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Hartman. So we're talking about Uvalde and and the horror that just went on in that school there with this kid. And and people are, are talking about guns and guns and guns and... I realized this was this goes back to what I was just talking to you about the founders. Everything revolves about small government. I just want to make this point for a minute, Julie. Please. Because people don't think this way at all. In the twentieth century, one hundred million civilians, not combatants, not talking war, were murdered by were murdered. I won't I don't want to fill in the by yet. Who murdered them? In every case but Rwanda, where, which is one million, by big government. Why doesn't anybody talk about that? Well, one of the things, Dennis, that I say to my peers, because we have this debate all of the time, where you know, big government versus small government, of course, they're big proponents of, of um, big government. I say to them, what is the difference between the KKK and the Nazi regime? Both of them are evil, horrid, wretched you know, groups. But the difference is that the Nazis were able to yield so much more power. Pa- yeah, that's because exactly government. Yes. Because the KKK so is not a government So this is what I realized. That's what the gun issue is about. Mm. The reason there is a constitutional right to own a gun in America is because the founders wanted people to have power. Right. It's a. It's not a gun issue. It's a power issue. Who's going to have all the power? The state. Or the state and the citizen. They weren't anarchists. They believed in government. Right. But that was their genius. That And that is what that is why the left hates guns. The left doesn't hate guns because they kill people. They hate guns because they give people power. And all power should reside in the state. Whether the state is Washington, D.C., or the state is Brussels for Europe, it doesn't matter. Or, or New York for the United Nations. That's that's what they want power to reside in. And uh, and unless you believe people are basically good, among the stupidest things people could believe, you the last thing you want is for power to be concentrated in a few hands. Right. That's how big this issue is. Boy, this gun issue. Well, one of the things that I was going to say earlier, because I was listing the points that Jacinda Ardern made. And so she listed the climate change thing, the child poverty thing. Then she did the abor- decriminalizing abortion when everyone stood up. And then the next thing she said was, we banned semi-automatic rifles. And that, you know, people had just sat down after uh-huh, the abortion right. thing. And then they all got up again and cheered. Um, I did not stand up during that either because... Honestly, because I hadn't done a lot of research at that point, I obviously I'd heard about the terrible, terrible massacre in Texas, but I wanted to do my research before I, you know, endorsed an opinion like that. Um, you know, of course, I believe that, as I know you do, that many on the left 
in their desire to enact gun control are, are coming from a good place and that they they hate the prevalence of these mass shootings and they really do believe that this is the solution. After doing my research, I see it a bit differently. Um, I mean, I'm very interested to hear what you think, Dennis. First of all, I don't think an 18-year-old should be able to have a weapon like that. I think that's crazy. Oh, I took that position on my right. radio show. That's crazy. The problem is, is, is the constitutional one. Right. Because the, the, there's no age specification. And look, we do give – it's a tough question. I, I, I still tend to what, what you just said. Right. Uh, but, of course, we give them weapons when they join the armed forces. Right. And you'll say, well, that's under controlled vi- environment. But so what? Uh, a soldier went berserk uh, at Fort Hood a few years ago, the Islamist uh, uh, doctor, and he, and he shot up uh, his, his, his whole uh, uh, you know, regiment or what? No, not that many, but the guy's in his own cabin. He just murdered, ma- mass murdered. Right. With, with a weapon that obviously he had. Right. So we do. We, he wasn't eighteen, but we do give it to eighteen-year-olds. Right. I, I just think it's that's far too young, and even I mean, this is a separate discussion. I don't even know why people should be able to have weapons of that kind. But my point. Well, is, we don't know what kind. I don't know if it was more than a handgun or a right. Or, first he of all, had a. He, did he have an? He had an, an, an AR. An AR type. Yeah. I am not. I am right. not well versed in the language of guns, but it was it was a massive, massive weapon. But besides, by the way, where did you know what did he? You know, he spent four thousand dollars on weapons and ammunition. Where did he get that money? I don't know. I heard that he worked at a Wendy's or yeah, a McDonald's well, you don't get or something. That you money. don't get that. Yeah, it's right. weird. It's weird. But, you know, although I do think an 18-year-old should not have a weapon like that, honestly, I'm starting to think people in general should not be able to have th- that kind of weapons. Of course, handguns are one thing, but but the thing that I don't hear people talking about, especially people my age, is that this shooter, alongside many other school shooters, did not have a father in the home. He came from a very broken family. He displayed signs of being a lunatic prior to the shooting. He, I mean, his classmates said that he would brag about abusing animals, and there's a video of him where he's holding a bag of dead cats, right. which is especially eerie because Nicholas Cruz, who was the shooter of um, in Parkland back in 2018, he also had this weird thing about dead animals and i think he there's pictures of him with bags you of torture dead cats. animals you torture people it's it's crazy and that's the thing that people i, I was just reading a heritage report that said that 75 percent of school shooters in the past 50 years have come from broken homes what and, and people are saying there's by the way ad- even broken home is not a good uh is not right, a, it's broad you know theoretically my kids come from broken homes right I, I, right I've, I've been divorced but i stayed their father Right. So the issue is fathers, not divorce. Yes, it is. And that's the thing that, look, I'm, when I hear people talking about this, I'm willing to say, as I just did, that I do think that there are some gun reforms that should happen as, as right. the, on the a On the AR thing, I just want to tell you two quick things, because yes. I've thought about it too. Emotionally, I agree with you, but not intellectually. Right. Uh, number one, never, literally never. It's not a, in other words, I'm not using it for dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. The left never stops. Totally. So totally, it, totally it, agree. It, the moment you ban X, you will ban Y. Okay? It, it is as, as given as the sun rises in the east. Number two, if, if the, this will not prevent one bad guy from getting that weapon. There are probably 100 million. There are 400 million guns uh, uh, in, in America and I don't know, are a quarter of them of the AR type, or a, or a tenth of them? It's we're still talking tens of millions. Uh, so all we do is prevent innocent people from the ability to, to defend themselves against bad people who have such weapons. Right. No, Dennis, I completely agree with you. I think you know if we if we think about this emotionally, yes. I have those positions, but also if you just think about it from a practical standpoint, you're right. There are so m- I mean, there are more guns than than citizens in the United States, and also in this world that we live in, people can pretty easily assemble or attain a weapon, especially with 3D printers and yes, all of these new right. technologies. So I don't. I, I think that you know 
a lot of my peers who are very pro-gun control, I, I can understand emotionally where they're coming from, and there are specific things that I agree on, but as far as a policy point of view, I don't think that gun control will do much. We have to focus so much more on father absence, which, you know, this is the thing that frustrates me. I am willing to say that maybe there are some parts of our gun laws that are not kosher. They will never ever acknowledge the role that father absence plays That's or that key. never and and the thing that i want to ask people on the left is what kind of responsibility do you think you bear for this you know they're all blaming it on guns and they're all blaming it on conservatives but there is a huge huge cultural problem here that people are are not at all paying attention to and you know even that it was it was interesting when i was reading about that sick shooter who had the um, bag of cats I thought to myself, you know, nowadays these things are kind of seen as just like alternative lifestyles. They're not these, you know, I mean, of course, someone who's on the left, like an average person who I would speak to would probably say that abusing animals and having a bag of cats is bad. But my point is a lot of people no longer are are so afraid to call things evil or so afraid to call things wrong because it's someone's truth or it's just someone's lifestyle. And we we have to get away from that. We have to start calling things evil and prosecuting people for these things and this this lax culture of wrongdoing and in this i mean we see it all the time with um people condoning criminal culture and giving them a pass i think that has contributed more than people think to more than guns i mean that's way more than guns i think it's your point that uh we we wrestle with the issue of what of type of guns and what age, but they don't wrestle with any issue. No. The moment you say fathers, they just call you racist or or, or whatever they will call you. Uh, guy, in, I read an L.A. Times opinion piece today, oh, the stupid people who speak about God and, and fathers, what do they know? I, it's unbelievable. So I've, I've asked the question, because uh, yeah, to me it does go back. Uh, this stuff does go back to God and religion, which the left hates when you say they hate it, and I know why. But it's a separate subject. Right. Uh, but uh, I just asked the simple question: How many murderers in prison went to church the Sunday prior to their murder? How many? So, since forty percent of Americans go to church or, or or some other house of prayer every every week. You would think if it has no effect, 40% of murderers should have been churchgoers. But what if it's a half a percent? What if it's 80 times underrepresented? Right. Why isn't that more effective? Why isn't God, religion, Bible, religious community more effective than gun control? And that's what I'd like to have an answer to. Well, if you look at the statistics, which, by the way, President Obama you know, back before he became uber leftist, would openly talk about it. He talked about it in his 2013 Morehouse College commencement address. If you look at the statistics of dropout, or high school and college dropout rates and incarceration rates, it's all linked to father absence. And the thing that I say to people is, if we discovered that, you know, serving orange juice to children in schools led to the outcome of having 75% of them drop out or you know if we basically if we substituted the the term fatherlessness or father absence for something more benign orange juice people would be up in arms and they would want to get rid of it why why are they so hostile to this idea of fatherlessness and b- before i before i want to hear your answer i want to say this one other thing before i forget what drives me crazy is that the people who say that fatherlessness doesn't matter or these bourgeoisie, middle-class virtues don't matter. They practice them. I had a debate uh, recently with um, an older gentleman who is libertarian, and we were talking about polygamy. And he said to me, oh, I don't care about polygamy. You know, it should be legal. Who cares? He's, he's very obviously libertarian in that way. And I said to him, with all due respect, may I ask you, if your child came home, your son, and said to you, hey, dad, just want to let you know I've got three wives and I'm giving you 12 grandchildren, you know, four for each wife. I said, how would you feel about that? Would you really, truly be OK with that? And he got very quiet and he said, well, I, I think I would, which is a lie. I could see it. I could see that it was dawning on him. And that that to me is the 
ultimate, I'm sorry if this sounds too harsh, it's the ultimate form of fraudulence. It is so, so, I mean, these people talk about privilege and helping. It's, a- it's, it's not just uh, fraudulence, it's arrogance. Yes. I know what's good for me, but I would never think it might be good for another person. Right. Because you're not on my level. Right. You, you you can't live by such l- rules that I live by. I, I'm, I'm that's in the final analysis. There's really a lot of that. So you will love, in light of what you just said, a line I give to my uh, liberal relatives, mm-hmm. and I say, you know, I just wish wish you would preach what you practice. Well, you said a few years ago on air, and I of course I watch reruns, and when I when I heard this, I wrote it down. You said there are two types of hypocrisy in life, not practicing what you preach and not preaching what you practice. That's and it. that's your very point. And boy, is that true. I wrote that down and put that on my wall, actually, because I see it everywhere. But back to my question, I, I'm very interested to hear your response. What is it about fatherlessness in that issue that so gets people angry? By the way, to my point and to your point, the people who get the most angry about it are oftentimes the ones who have had fathers in the home who you know i see my friends well it's this it's the preach watcher practice thing again because they they had that up they had the privilege of uh, of having a father in their life what is it about it anything that says that america is not responsible right but the bad guy is bothers them and anything resembling a traditional that's God true. forbid, right. the Christian traditional is the way of word. life. It, yes, it, 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 one could write up A through Z curse words for liberals, <laughs> yeah. and, and traditional would be one of them. That is so funny. We should do that. <laughs> we should write down curse words for liberals. Yeah, Christianity, we should. traditional. I, I had a piece of the Wall Street Journal men. years ago. You're right. That we let we let's let's, let's work on it. that. Yes. Next episode. And, we're, and or or we're we'll, doing we'll it. write it up and submit it. But I you you would love this uh, a glossary of liberal terms. Uh, in other words, a living dictionary of of uh, what term the left will use and what they really mean by it. So I, I will show it to you. It was in, it was in the Wall Street Journal in the 1990s? What year were you born? 99. That's really funny. It, it's BJ before Julie. <laughs> I love that. That's so funny. We're going to start using that. BC, AD, right. whatever. Well, by the way, I have a new BC before COVID because oh that really is BC. You know, my dad said to me last night amidst our whole political discussion, he, he was agreeing with me. We were talking about COVID and he said to me, Boy, I've lived through a lot of things. I lived through the Vietnam War. I've lived through 9-11, all the things that you you have lived through, Dennis. He said, I think our world has just is so different after COVID in a way that, that I haven't seen after these other big events. That's right. Well, Would you agree? Yeah, totally. But but I, I never say COVID. With all, the, the BC was, was just to point out that I know how the world has changed. But it's not really. It's BL before lockdown. It wasn't COVID that changed the world. It was the lockdowns. And by the way, Dennis, back to the uh, Jacinda Ardern speech, I thought this was so interesting. She never mentioned COVID. That is interesting. Never mentioned COVID. Because New Zealand was known for its lockdowns. Yes. And so she mentioned all these other policies. She never mentioned COVID. She never, because she was talking about, again, the policies that she is. Um, tried to enact or has successfully enacted as prime minister, she never talked about her COVID response. If you had graduated from Brooklyn College, would you have gone to your graduation? I probably would have. Yeah, I think I so. Like events. And by the way, you know, I'm I'm talking about the bad parts of the graduation. It really was a beautiful ceremony. No, no, I totally I, believe I that. You know. I'm sure they know how to do this stuff. They got it down to And an it was art. a joyous day, but I think I would have. How woke is the president of Harvard? He's pretty woke. You know, again, he's... What's his name again? Larry Bacow. He's pretty woke. I mean, how, you're the president of Harvard. That that comes with the the job. They're not, they wouldn't hire him if he weren't woke. Another, another point I want to make while we're talking about Jacinda Ardern that I thought was interesting. So I said at the beginning of this episode that the 
the overall message that I got, although she did not say it overtly um, in her speech, was that, you know, New Zealand gets all these things right and you Americans don't. It's a very interesting part of the speech where she said, you know, 50% of our parliament members are women, 20% are the indigenous population of New Zealand, and I I forget, but some high-level government official, she said, is a proud gay man and stands aside several other rainbow parliamentarians. So, of course, everyone gets up and starts clapping and wooing and whistling. And I thought to myself... You know, does it not occur to people that that New Zealand is a population of five million? And you just you cannot compare it to. So all these all of my peers afterwards that are saying, oh, my gosh, New New Zealand does it so well. It it drives me crazy because you just can't compare the two. It's like when when the left compares us to Europe. So here's a here's what goes on in my mind. Why did they did they did they stand up or just cheer loudly with the uh, LGBT members of the New Zealand Parliament? To be honest, I can't remember. I remember they stood up for abortion and for guns. I can't remember right, that but part, it was but a big it, was, cheer. it was overwhelming. Right, overwhelming cheer. Right. Yes. So here's the question: mm-hmm. Is it because of some great love for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender? I don't think so. No. What this is really about is. This is a rejection of Judeo-Christian Western norms. They even use the term heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. The idea that you could say, I, I, oh, so let me share with you something and with, with, with our, our listeners slash viewers. So I, I was at the bar mitzvah of a couple in Florida with whom I'm very close. My wife and I are very close. We are godparents to their two, two, two boys, one of whom was bar mitzvah this, this past weekend, and I spoke at the bar mitzvah. So it will come as some perhaps shock, but certainly interest to uh, those listening uh, that this is two men. This is a gay couple married. I was the speaker at their son's bar mitzvah. My wife and I are the godparents to their children. And yet to any leftist who's aware of me, I'm a homophobe. Right. Now, why am I a homophobe? Which is, a I, I don't know if we dealt with this, because I know this was always an issue that you felt here would be one of the few examples where we might differ on gay marriage and so on. But uh, they know my position. Uh, and and he, so why am I raising this? Not just to make the point of the absurdity of be, me being a homophobe, but the the heteronormativity line so I, I'm very, very close to another gay uh, couple, two guys, and he said, to his great credit, he said to me, he said, Dennis, I, I completely agree that the ideal is a mother and a father. What am I, out of my mind? It's just obviously not an option for a, for a, gay, a gay man. I, I'm, I just, I'm not attracted to women. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. And I go, exactly and that's one of the reasons I love you and, and, and your partner, or you, in this case, your husband. Right. The, the, so, but the left, the heterosexual left, will never acknowledge that mother and father is the ideal. There is no such thing as the ideal. And if the ideal emanates in any way from, from what is called Judeo-Christian, they loathe it. So the cheering for LGBTQ plus at, at Harvard was not for LG, for L's and G's and B's and T's <laughs> and Q's and pluses. Right. It was to cheer the downfall of normativity a la Judeo-Christian normativity. That's what it is about. You are absolutely right. And another thing is that I, I think this is huge reason why so many of the people stood up not only during that part but during the abortion and and guns parts too it's because they wanted people around them to see that they were standing up and it's they felt like you know they don't even think about it um deeply it's just they hear these lines the same way that you said you know you can get a lot of callers come in if you just say guns or abortion in that same way when people hear decriminalize abortion or ban guns or lbg it's like it's just instinctual. They don't even think about it. They just stand up because they know that's on the list of 
policy decisions that I have to cheer loudly for, so that's what I'm going to do. And they wanted everyone in, around them, all of their peers, to see them doing it. That's why you wrote about the sheep. Uh, I did. The COVID. I yep. was stunned that that didn't sort of bury you at uh, school. I was a bit stunned, too. I Again, you know, I... I well, to your credit, though, it, look... Julie wrote a real attack on her fellow Harvard students as sheep during the acceptance of these idiotic rules of masks and lockdowns and stay in your room and so on. Uh, When your age group is is more affected by suicide, you know, more Americans under 65, forget under 25, under 65 in 2021 committed suicide than were killed by COVID. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Washington Post. I didn't know it was that high. I mean, I knew it was staggering, but my God. That's right. My God is right. Oh, my gosh. Yes. See, again, they're not, they're, no matter how much evidence you give to them about suicide rates or father absence or anything, they, they just shut it off. They well, will not Well, what they would do it. is they would take the suicide rate and say, see, people shouldn't have guns. Right. That's right. what they would do with it. Well, it's great to have you. On that happy note. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's very hard. <laughs> On happy notes. What was that, Sean? Oh, yes. Mention where people can email you. Yes, you can email me at Julie Dash. Oh, no, not Julie Dash. Remember, we had that whole thing oh, where someone wrote in. Hyphen. Forgive me. I forget the name of the person who, who pointed this out to me. But he said, it's not Dash, it's hyphen. So it's Julie hyphen Proves that Julie reads her mail. I do read my mail. And in fact, I didn't say this, but one of the reasons why I talked about guns today was because a lot of people wrote in and were interested to hear what we think. So I, I do read them. I do take your suggestions into account. But please email me. I will pass them along to Dennis. And thanks to all of you. I really mean this. So many of you have written such lovely messages of congratulations about my graduation and such lovely messages about our podcast. And boy, Dennis, you have some really good listeners. We have some really good listeners, but you all are great people. And it really means a lot to me. Thank you. I would write to you. Hey, what are you going to do, by the way? Your your address is harvard.edu. When does that end? They give you a year. They give you a year. They give you a year, so you can still email me at that address. Boy, it's it's really going to hit that I'm no longer a college student when that goes away. Why did they take it away? I mean, I I understand. You're not a student. You're not affiliated with Harvard anymore. All right, that's fine. I wasn't saying it critically. I I was just curious. Yeah. I think that, you know, part of me think that they want more people to affiliate. But but I mean, yeah, they probably you're, you're want not, to get me off of the. Email. Well, yeah, that's the other thing they can't control really. Then right, who 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 would use it? Right. Welcome back to Southern California. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here in person. Yeah, it's a delight. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, please remind your friends Dennis and Julie, because uh, we do good stuff here. I've never had a podcast with anybody in my life. It's a joy, Julie. It always is. Over the sand is in the plains. You got time, you're on the man bay. And everybody wants the same. Everybody wants the same thing. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.